should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week to week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Welcome to Week to Week, the political roundtable from the Commonwealth Club of California for Monday, July 27th, 2015. This was the week in which many Republicans demanded that Donald Trump apologize to John McCain for denigrating his time as a POW. You all saw that story. Comedian Steve Marmel noted, quote, Donald Trump was asked if he owed John McCain an apology. He said no. Of course he said no. If Trump owes anybody anything, he doesn't apologize. He files for bankruptcy. So thank you for joining us today here in San Francisco. I'm John Zipper, your host for Week to Week and the Commonwealth Club's Vice President of Media and Editorial. On today's program, we are going to talk about the latest in the never-ending presidential campaign, perhaps even a little about, you know who? Uh, we'll talk about developments in the sanctuary city policy and the ensuing controversy, the minimum wage stuff happening there, as well as more local, state, and national political news and views. As usual, any views that are expressed up here are those only of the panelists and not of the Commonwealth Club of California. So let's meet our panelists for today. Starting on the far end is Deborah J. Saunders, a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, where she's also the token conservative blogger at sfgate.com. <laughs> That's actually what it's called, folks. Uh, she's on Twitter at Deborah J. Saunders. Next to her is Daniel Bornstein, a columnist and editorial writer for the Contra Costa Times, the Oakland Tribune. He's on Twitter at Bornstein Dan. So he put his name, first name last. It's very tricky. And next to me is Josh Richmond, state and national politics reporter for the Bay Area News Group. He's also a political blogger at ibabuzz.com slash politics. And he's on Twitter at Josh underscore Richmond. So Deborah, Josh. Try it with your name at the end. I hear that's the happening thing. Just give it a try. So please use the question cards that are on your seats to write down and submit any questions. I will try to ask as many as possible during the program. So let's get started with our roundtable. And I do want to start with presidential stuff. But before we get to Trump, uh, 
The New York Times recently ran a story, did you see this late last week, about a original story was a criminal investigation that was being pursued into Hillary Clinton's emails. This involves that private server that she and President Clinton have at their home. Um, very soon, however, that story started to change and fall apart, and no, it wasn't criminal, and actually it wasn't asked for, blah, blah, blah. Um, it obviously kind of played into the Clinton uh, campaign's ability to, if you will, do rapid response, which is something they were kind of famous for. But uh, there still is a serious issue there, and I'm going to start with Deborah there. I mean, so what did you think when you heard this story? Beyond this will certainly play into worries the Clintons have always had about the press. And conservatives feel that the New York Times buckled. The, the deal is, I, I, have a, I, get a nook, I have a nook, and that means you shouldn't buy one because whatever technology I go for is like out the door. And I get the New York Times downloaded in the morning, and there are already corrections in a lot of the stories right. and stuff. And, and you'll see that if you just, you know, since we're on the West Coast, they start, the stories go up Thursday night, everybody's on the phone and they peel stuff back. So this is actually a pretty typical thing to have happen. Um, but the New York Times looks bad because it had, it had reporting based on anonymous sources. But we know this because we've seen the letter. One inspector general, there was talk of two, wrote a, asked the Department of Justice to investigate. And you know what? The Department of Justice doesn't look at parking tickets, right? It, 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 he, the, the inspector general looked at 40 out of 3,000 um, emails and found that four of them had information that should have been classified secret. Now, come on. We know that if she was using her, uh, her, you know, her email for work, that this was going to happen. She's the Secretary of State. She's not the parks manager. And this is going to be a problem that keeps coming out, the fact that, the, that she, she basically wiped clean the server after she turned over some 3,000 emails to the State Department, and she kept another 3,000, and we're supposed to trust her on her word that is uh, you know, private. That, that's not, that, that doesn't end well. And the fact that it's starting out this way, I think people are looking at it. Democrats say no one's going to not vote for her because of this, but it reminds people of all the other problems with Hillary Clinton, and I do think that it will hurt her, and it should, because that, you know, it, when you are Secretary of State, your documents are part of the public record, and they should be accessible to people who manage that kind of thing, look at that kind of thing to the Inspector General and, and, and other things, and it's, it's wrong what happened. I, I, I just... I can't help but when you say, Democrats say that people aren't going to vote for her because of this. Are going to not vote for her. Are, are, are vote for her. I think there are people who won't vote for her because of this sort of thing. And I think that this is problematic. I, I, I think that this continuing stream of stories, that the whole server is going to get exploited, the whole email server. And it's, it's, it's creating a story that they were slow to respond to to begin with. It's, it's so Clinton-esque, if you will, in its nature, slow response. It's, it, it, it's the, the cover-up is part of it. It's a story that peels the layers away one by one by one, and it goes on forever. I think that it may not be this story, but it just feeds into the preconceptions at a, 
of a certain voter. And who's that voter? It may turn out to be that swing voter that turns out to be important down the line. That's, that's the issue, I think. Let me, let me preface this by saying I'm a reporter and they're columnists, so I have to be a little more careful. But, uh, <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> definitely more careful than that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the time's screwed up, uh, you know, but, but there is something there. It, it is, it is a, a terrible narrative, you know, to, to have when you're running uh, a presidential campaign. I think the deal with those four emails, correct me if I'm wrong, is that they, were, they contained secret or classified information that was not marked as such that had gone to her and that, that she then either replied to or forwarded on from her private email server. She was not the originating source of that information doesn't negate the fact that she was you know, receiving and transmitting this you know, classified information on a private email server. And I think it, you know, as you have people like Carly Fiorina or Jeb Bush or, or Rand Paul, for that matter, talking about the importance of being a 21st century tech-savvy president, if you don't understand how to send email, you know, or, or what, the, what the pitfalls are of having a server like this you know, that's not under... Uh, you know, classified government control, then, you know, it, it raises questions about, about judgment, if, if nothing else. So. You brought up something I wanted to talk about, which is uh, former Florida Governor Jeb Bush recently visited San Francisco. He hailed an Uber ride. Um, so does this establish him as a tech-friendly frontrunner? Is he going to rent out his mansion on, on Airbnb? No, but, but I, think, I think, you know, his willingness to come here and do that underscores that you can't underestimate the guy. You know, he, he's, he's obviously not, you know, super tech savvy the way that some of the candidates have tried to position themselves, you know, uh, but, but he, he came to this, the, you know, he, he took the Uber ride to this, this startup here in, in the South Market area and talked to a crowd full of people and he took some tough questions about marriage and employment equality for, for LGBT people, about gun control, about things that you would expect to hear from a San Francisco audience. They were not necessarily a supportive crowd, but he answered their questions very honestly. You know, on the gun control issue, he basically ended with, well, we're going to have to agree to disagree on this, you know. And, and he's a much better communicator. This may be setting a low bar. He's That's much, bar. much better going. communicator than his brother, especially in these smaller groups. You know, he, he may not be a... And he, he actually said this himself, you know, he'd love to have the charisma of a Barack Obama who can, who can hold an arena-sized or national audience-sized, you know, group in, in thrall. But he's good at connecting with people in small groups, and you underestimate him as a campaigner at, at, at your peril, I think. You know, I saw him at the National Auto Dealers Association yeah, was, in San Francisco in January, and he was just, I, 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 I it was, he was awful. Mm. Uh, he was just, he was so boring. And then I went to th this event at Thumbtack, and he was just incredibly accessible. Is he a front runner, John? No. I still don't buy that. He's going to have to work for that. Really? But tech savvy, I, I have to disagree with you a little bit, Josh. He was one of the, he, he got a Blackberry before a lot of other people 15 years ago. And this is funny, you know that you know. <laughs> no, no. Hillary has it. <laughs> um, but, but he, he, um, he, he's, he's so transparent. You, you, you had a good, you were talking about how he took questions and difficult ones, and that really compares to Hillary Clinton, if this is going to be Clinton-Bush, right? He also gaggled with the press for 15 minutes yeah. outside of this event, which 
let the record show, Secretary Clinton has not been willing to do on her visits to the Bay Area. So. But what, so, but also, he started emailing like 15, he, he sent a note afterward to Carla Marinucci, my, my, my colleague, and he, and he said, hey, Carla, uh, on a, in a tweet, remember this email exchange we had 15 years ago? He saved all of his emails and put them up online so everybody can read them. And that really is an amazing balance with Hillary Clinton again. And it showed that 15 years ago he was, hey, I'll just talk to people. And I think his email is something like jeb at something, bushsomething.com. I mean, you can actually Google it and find it. And he started letting ordinary people email him, and he would send out a couple answers a day. So that shows, and, I, and the other thing is Hillary Clinton trashed Uber in the last month. And she's basically saying, I'm gonna side with the you know, incumbent industry, like they say, taxis, limos, and whatever, against kids who wanna be able to earn some extra money renting out a room or driving for Uber, and that's the, the, the stand she took. Now, Republicans are trying to get young voters, and Rand Paul, up until now, really was the only Republican who seemed to know how to reach out to those people. Jeb Bush is making a move there. And it's the most impressive thing I've seen him do in this race. When you, when you say, is he a front runner? No. no. And I guess my question then is, well, then who is? Because Nobody. I mean, well, Nobody. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, but isn't he, uh, to a certain extent, by definition, well, yeah, Hillary on one side, obviously. Yeah. But on the Republican side, he's swamped the field in money. You know, doesn't I, to a certain extent doesn't that really make him certainly a front runner? If not, you know. Well, you can't be a front runner. It's like being yeah, okay. a number one. A, okay, <laughs> but there is right now. It's well, such if a. You have seventeen candidates. I think you can have a few front runners. Well, so, okay, <laughs> but you know. So I mean, he, is is he somebody to watch? Is he a, a a likely nominee? Yeah, if you want likely for three people or four people. Yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So do you know who I like? Uh, I do. <laughs> well, but you know who I'm really fascinated about getting into the race is John Kasich, the Ohio governor. He is somebody who's going to bring, an, you know, he's coming from the, from the middle, and he's, he's vigorously campaigning that way, and I think he's going to be somebody, so I'm telling all of you, watch John Kasich, okay? He came in four in this poll in New Hampshire, and that's before his big buy, because he, he just had a big ad buy in New Hampshire. He's somebody who, and he's gonna, he's gonna fight Jeb for New Hampshire, and uh, he's, he's uh, you know, he's, he's human like everybody else and has his flaws, but he is a fascinating candidate. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Hey. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. I'm glad you brought up John Kasich because there are, when you've got so many candidates in a party, it, it is easy for kind of the more colorful ones to take over and, and, and obviously get the attention. And that is where I'm eventually going with this. But it, it is somewhat of a shame, both I think for Republicans and Democrats as well, who want serious discussions, because there are quite a number of Republicans this year who are of substance. You might disagree with them, you might disagree with them strongly, but you know, Scott Walker, Jeb Bush, I would say, uh, Kasich, Lindsey Graham. I mean, there are some you could have a very interesting civil and and uh, a civil conversation in which the, the differences between them and the Democratic opponents are very clear. And yet, we're talking about the Donald. Don't do it. Don't do it, John. We're going there sooner or later. I just, I mean, as a Republican, yeah, I know, that, that, I know. Must, that, that must worry you. As, I, mean, or, I don't know, does it make you shred things when just thinking about the, the folks who are not getting the attention that, that well, they could? Okay, so he's like, Donald Trump is the GOP's Voldemort, he who should not be named, right? <laughs> and, and he's going to steal a lot of attention, and mm -hmm. then he's going to crash. And he's, going to, he's probably going to make the first debate because he will come in. The Fox News criteria are criterion, criteria is plural, criterion. <laughs> it's one, the criterion is that you have to come in the top ten in a mix of five polls, and we don't know what the five polls are. And by any measure, Donald Trump makes it. But, um, it, and it's just, you know, he, um, but he will not, you know, he's not going to win. So, isn't, may, isn't okay. it better that it's happening now? Isn't it better that it's happening? That, that oh, we sort, yeah. sort of we get this Donald Trump out of our system, you know, before. So, so, do you know why Donald Trump is popular? Because people hate us in the media. And he keeps trashing the media, and every time he trashes the media, he bumps up. Now, okay. there, that's a finite, there's a finite number. People, that, yeah, the, the Republicans have been trashing, you know, Sarah Palin did it too. You didn't yeah. see her skyrocket quite to the extent that... Don, Donald is like the, the unchained id of the Republican <laughs> Party. You know, he's, he's tapping into something, and he is going to crash. I have absolutely no doubt of it. Uh, he's, he's not going to be... Uh, He's not going to even be around when the caucus rolls around. I'm sure of it. But you know, he he is tapping into a, a, a very basic sense of fear and resentment and anger that people have. It exists on the left too, and there are people you know who are trying to mobilize that to some extent. But 
you know, Trump is, is a showman. This, this, he's in his element here. He knows how to tap into, how to push people's buttons, and he is gleefully going to push as many buttons as he can, you know, until somebody takes the keyboard away. Um, <laughs> you know, but, but, but to say that, that, he, that people are, you know, obviously people are identifying with him. He has hit something that, that is powerful. You know, he, he wouldn't be topping these national polls right now albeit with 18 or 19%, you know, in, in a very fragmented field, if, if people weren't hearing something in him that they like, right? So, okay, but is it possible people say they like Donald Trump just because they ne wouldn't necessarily vote for him, but they like what, they're, what he's saying this week, and so right, but just, if they like, it's sort if, of if like they're like pushing their own saying, button. Then they're going to want the other ones to say it too. Yeah, you know? so, so, so he is influencing the way, I mean, you know, you see it in Ted Cruz, you see it in Mike Huckabee. The people who are, I never thought, of, thought I would characterize those guys as being in the middle of the Republican field, but <laughs> compared to Trump, you know, but they're, they're, they're adjusting their rhetoric, and, and really some of the others are too, Be, because they see that he's hit, you know, there's nothing more powerful in politics than, than anger and fear, you know, no matter who's wielding it on, on whichever side of the spectrum. People respond to that. To what extent are we, we in the media, creating him? You know, if I, I, we don't I, I, cover him, then we get accused yeah, I mean, of not, you know, yeah, of, of not covering a, a candidate who's at the top of the polls. So I mean, you know, yeah, what, what do you do? He wasn't at the top of the polls when it, when nobody when he hadn't announced and nobody thought he was going to run. Everybody had to run out and get that interview. And by the way, he's not really a Republican. I mean, I know he's registered as one now. He used to be registered as a Democrat. He's in certain years. He's given more money to Democrats than Republicans. So, some, you know, he including he, Hillary Clinton. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, he the, the, it's it's something that he's really gotten a pass on, and he shouldn't. Yeah, but 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 but, but really, what about this notion that we in the media, by you know, are are, are creating this? Are, are, I, I got hammered at a dinner the other night about this, you know, because you know. The media and and looking at me and and are we, to a certain extent we are we giving him too much play? Are we giving him too much coverage? Are we? Well, of course. You know, I, I mean, mean, would you rather write about you know Donald Trump's latest comments, or would you rather write in depth about John Kasich's budget proposals or Hillary Clinton's solar energy plans? Both of which are far more important than anything Donald Trump has to say, but. It's not as much fun for you guys, right? It's really hard to cover this race because there are so many candidates in it. And, and I, you know, Hillary's climate change proposal came out. I haven't read it yet. Now, there's a time I would have read more about that, but I'm, I'm feel, feel like I'm being buried alive. Well, when you get down, when you get to the actual general election, that's different. And it, yes. That becomes a different thing. Yeah. But, but there is a certain problem that's happened here where the Republicans have allowed, or not have allowed, they've created, or they have, this Mongo field. Look at Josh, he's got this look like, I've read it. Yeah. Look at him, look at, look at him. You know, you know, I, I think, what do you I mean? Think, uh, no, I think if people think he's a jerk, then we would report on him, and he wouldn't be at the top of the polls. You know, I, I, think, I, think, I don't think we create uh, goodwill for, for a certain set of ideas just by reporting on no, them. No, no, we, you know, we create I mean, goodwill by, by, by by covering him as a buffoon, and then everybody, and then all these people well, knee-jerk come to his aid and say, "How dare you treat no, 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 our that's, buddy?" That's not what's going. Look, it's it's not a question of creating goodwill, and it's not. Let's let's be realistic. These you, when you spread the field so thin, 
then the poles become, you, you can jump out ahead with such an infinitesimal amount, and for just a certain portion of one party in, in this country, to spread it so thin and then to try and jump ahead, you don't really need a really thoughtful group of people, if, with all due respect, to get there, right? I mean, all you need is to grab the attention of 15% of this, of one half or one third of the registered vote vo of the party with, of one party. We, we have a question yeah. that from the audience that, that kind of yeah. goes right into that. Says Donald Trump bashed the Mexicans and they said he would lose the Hispanic vote. Then he bashed McCain and they said he would lose the veterans. Yet he continues to be in the lead. Uh, what is the lesson to be learned here? There are no Latino Republicans. No. Uh, <laughs> or, or, or not that many, comparatively. And, and no of veterans, too, and no there veterans too Josh? Don't, don't, there are no veterans in the Republican? Yeah, okay. There are de definitely veterans in there. And, and I would dare say that the veterans are part of the uh, uh, 20, I'm sorry, 80% of Republicans who don't back Trump at this point. The, national, the rolling average that there's a website called Real Clear Politics, bookmark it. They do it nationally, they do it for the early primary states. Right now, Trump is in the lead in the six most recent national polls, 18.2%. Next closest person is Bush, 13.7. Doesn't sound like much, but that's actually quite a lead compared to how it's going in some of the early primary states. Um, but again, that's 18.2% of Republicans. Right? There's plenty of room for veterans and Latinos, and I know, I know a lot of Latino Republicans who cannot believe that this schmo is in the lead, and, and it, is, it is personally deeply offensive to them. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, yes, I, you know, I, I think he has alienated uh, a lot of Latino voters. That's less important in the Republican primary than it will be when you're battling for 10 battleground states in November. And, and, and let me tell you... It's going to make a difference, but he's not going to be the nominee, so it won't make a but, difference. But Josh, this is also just plain pure name recognition, too. Let's let's, sure. let's recognize that, and, and I think Dan's point was such a great one about how many people there are. And so I, a lot of this is just plain, yeah, I heard something, he said something I like. I'm not really thinking about it because I'm not going to vote for a while. Donald Trump. Yeah, he's, he, he's, he's, he's going to flame out. Exactly. He's going exactly. to flame out. What, what we saw in the last cycle is everybody had a turn at the top. You know, Herman Cain up there at the top for two oh, weeks, then, you know, some, uh, somebody else up the top. And, and, and when, when everything was said and done, Mitt Romney was still there and, and, and he got the nomination. You know, he, he, he kept it slow and steady and did his thing in a more, you know, some would say a more principled and dignified sort of way. <laughs> As you see the Scott Walkers and Jeb Bushes and, and you know, perhaps Marco Rubio's of the world trying to do now. Mm -hmm. They're going to let everybody else flame out around them, and that's who you're going to have to choose from come the early caucuses. And the, now, the one, can I just say one more thing? The one wild card here is, uh, is, the, is, the, is the independent expenditure money, because it keeps, you know, Newt Gingrich was sort of like the master of that in 2012. He could live off the land. You don't have to pay for a huge staff. You can just sort of try. I remember John McCain. Remember John McCain in 2008, staying at like the, the Super 8 motel and with, with his own luggage, but he didn't have a staff. Now these guys can have staff. So it should flame out earlier, but it won't because they're going to have all this extra money from, you know, millionaires, you know, you're, you're their pet candidate and they'll put money for you. So that's the, that's the thing that's sort of. Oh, I, I believe I just saw that. Bush, Walker, Rubio, and. 
I forget who the fourth one is. They're all headed to a, a gathering, I believe it's in Southern California, where the Koch brothers and, and affiliated donors are, are meeting and they're gonna make their pitches for this, this, these tremendous sums of money. That's where Jeb Bush's money is right now. If you recall, he raised, what, 14 million in the second quarter for his Sounds campaign, right but 111 million for the super PAC. That's where the money is, so. So someone asked, how will the Donald flame out? Um, I think we can assume it'll be him insulting somebody, but do you think it'll be a quick flame? Yeah, <laughs> himself he'll insult, and then he'll, and he's his funder, so at that point he'll get upset and pull I, him I think the question is how many, how many uh, you know, the first debate is next month, and the question is how many Republicans, uh, do Republicans gang up on him or ignore him? Well, Rick Perry has been making a very yes. concerted effort to call him out. That's right. Of course, Rick Perry is trailing badly in most of the polls right now. So, it, you know. And he was before. And he was so before, there's like, yes. Yeah. You know. He's got nothing to do with yeah. Lindsey Graham's run out. Did you, and, and well, if, if, if you have a couple minutes, uh, Google Lindsey Graham's cell phone. Yes. Because the Donald gave out his phone number, and he did this very funny video about how you can destroy your cell phone. So, just... <laughs> I liked his uh, tweet, actually. Right, right after it happened, Lindsey Graham tweeted, um, I'm considering buying a new phone, iPhone or Android? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, He's never sent an email in his life. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Someone asks if uh, Jeb Bush's wife, who is Mexican, uh, if that will build, help him get a Latino votes. Do you think so? I don't know about, I mean, it, it can't hurt. I think the fact that, that he speaks fluent Spanish and is willing to engage on immigration issues in a way that most of the rest of the field isn't, I think that's gonna help him with Latino voters. Absolutely. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years, and uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now, because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. 
I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Now, there was, I don't know if any of you saw the tweet today. Donald, I've got one more thing on Donald here. Uh, Donald tweeted he's going to uh, go take two days away from his campaign, or maybe he'll keep campaigning while he's there, who knows, while he attends the Women's British Open at a Scottish resort that he owns. Um, I should say it's probably a super luxury number one quality resort that he owns. Um, Josh, I mean, this is what his campaign is. It's 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 business as business, right? It's a show. It's a real. He's a reality TV star. I mean, this 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 is what he. Like I said before, he's in his element. If he can say outrageous things and get cameras on him, he's a happy guy. He doesn't care where he is when the cameras show up. Yeah. He can be in Scotland or he can Because he knows the cameras will be there. The cameras will be there. So he's, he's campaigning. He'll be campaigning wherever he is. I, I don't know. I have to keep thinking. <coughs> British Women's Open. What could go wrong? What, could he, what stupid thing could he possibly say, right? <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, let's talk about someone else who I guess now is the moderate force of the Republican Party, Ted Cruz. Um, he's, he, this week he's been fighting with, uh, I don't know if you saw this, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and uh, he took Mitch McConnell to task on the Senate floor. Um, does this help him in his kind of anti-establishment appeal, or does this make him look, you know, I would think, again, in comparison to Donald Trump, who's just like going right at, you know, the, the media and the establishment, does this make maybe Ted Cruz look to his potential supporters as, why are you arguing so vociferously about the import-export bank, which is what this was about, that 99% of the people don't know what it is, even though it's actually an important issue? Um, I think winning... he's try I'm just guessing he's trying to differentiate himself from Marco Rubio, and I mean now, the, that he the, shows up for the votes. Well, that he's yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ooh, that's, so so the the thing that's the thing to know about Ted Cruz is a lot of Republicans don't like him. I'm one of them, and it's because when he d d pushed for this vote to defund Obamacare, all it did is hurt the Republican Party, and it was it, he just led everybody into a box canyon. Now. He, he could try to, you know, say, say, show he's changed. Obviously, he's decided not to do that. And this fight with Mitch McConnell is his way of showing that he's not really part of Washington. And he isn't mm -hmm. um, because he's getting into this fight. Now, uh, Kevin McCarthy 
uh, says that there, it, it looks as though on the policy, the, the whip from uh, Southern California, from Bakersfield, it looks policy-wise as though what Ted Cruz wants to have happen will succeed because Kevin McCarthy says, no, we're not going to vote on the transportation bill with, with the XM, the Export-Import yeah, Bank. Yeah. Um, so it, I, there, there is a sort of libertarian-leaning constituency that the stand appeals to I'm somebody who's sympathetic to that, by the way. I just don't like the way Ted Cruz operates. So, so uh, while we're on the topic, what do you think about how Mike Huckabee operates? So Mike Huckabee, was he was criticizing the Iran nuclear deal by saying that Obama, this was like Obama marching the Israelis to the door of the ovens. Um, a little over the edge, Josh? This is what I meant before about, about certain candidates uh, ramping up their rhetoric because they feel that, that a certain somebody has already set such a, you know, a, a bar for, for rhetoric that they have to compete. That's not a comment he would have made if, I, I, I'm almost sure of it, it's not a comment he would have made in that, in that way if there weren't a Donald Trump out there being even more outrageous every single day. Yeah, and it, it just lowers the bar to such a low level. It, I mean, that, yeah, that's just offensive. It, it, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, if you're not offended by that, there's something wrong yeah, with you. Yeah. <laughs> President Obama uh, said uh, Trump and Huckabee were ridiculous and sad. Um, but for the most part, the Democrats have kind of stayed out of this, the, the Huckabee extremes, the, the Donald Trump extremes. Um, I mean, Dan, are the Democrats successfully following Napoleon's rule to never interfere with their enemy when he's making a mistake? Yeah, I mean, why, 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 why step in? You know, let him, let him self-destruct, you know? I mean, you know, in this state, the Republican Party was known for years and years for its circular firing squad. Why the hell would you want to get in the middle of it? You know, I mean, uh, this, this is... You know, the Democrats I, have their own, it's just a little small. Smaller, right. And nobody's watching. Well, Deborah, brighter days are ahead. Well, I mean, it is sort of, let me see. It's, we've been here for half an hour. Well, we started off talking about Hillary. So, you know, I, there, there, there is a time, there are times when I think, hey, did you guys know that there are Democrats in this state? But tonight, we, we started off with Hillary, and then we moved to Donald Trump, which was personally painful for me. Well, let, let's yeah. talk about something that... Uh, I think it's fair to say Democrats created and have sustained and are now trying to deal with, and that is the sanctuary city policy here in San Francisco. Um, there is, uh, there are, I mean, this has got everyone talking about it. Of course, we all know what happened, the, the uh, tragic killing of this woman by an undocumented immigrant who had been deported five times or seven times? Like seven felony seven convictions, felony. five deportations. Yeah. Um, what... I find is interesting is that, well, there's a lot interesting about this, but um, when it first happened, I know of a, a local politician who was asked about this in a private conversation who basically said, it, you know, this, this won't last as, a, as an issue. And uh, before long, he was proposing massive changes to the, to the rule, to the uh, program and, and such. It does seem that when you hear supervisors, the mayor, Diane Feinstein, others, who are commenting on the sanctuary city policy, they usually start off with you know, paying fealty to it and then laying all the blame on Sheriff Ross Mercurimi. So I'm gonna to go to you, Deborah, first. You, you know Mercurimi. Um, is that fair? Is he being targeted? I mean, he's, he's 
been controversial from the from really before day one as sheriff. Well, Ross Mercurimi, uh he believes in that sanctuary city policy, and he was going to enforce it. He also went beyond the policy by sending out a directive to his department in March saying, don't talk to ICE. I'm the only person who talks to ICE. So this is a, a policy that, that, you know, you can definitely point to him and say he's responsible for it. But when I hear Ed Lee blaming Ross Mercurimi for what happened, when this was, that, that, that there was a 2013 ordinance um, Justice for All, that basically said that the, the local authorities were not supposed to cooperate with ICE on a detainer request unless uh, the detainer request for, for someone who had been convicted of a felony in the last seven years and was facing another problem like that. Now, Juan Francisco Lopez Sanchez does not fit that description. So according to the policy passed by City Hall, he was in the full spirit of the law. San Francisco's law. You, you, mentioned, you mentioned Dianne Feinstein, who said, oh, no. And she, of course, was a big sanctuary city booster when she was mayor of San Francisco, but it was a, a different policy. She's basically called on Ed Lee to work and cooperate with ICE. I don't know really quite what's going to happen, because on the one hand, uh, when uh, Fox News uh, sent somebody to City Hall and tried to interview supervisors, and they all basically said, this is Fox News. We don't have to really recognize that there's a problem with the policy. And there is a problem with the policy. But they, and remember, in 2008, um, in, in, an illegal immigrant who had been benefited from a similar sanctuary city policy shot and killed Tony Bologna and his two sons. That's three people in San Francisco, and, and then Gavin Newsom, changed the law back, the policy back. He directed the probation department to not basically go easy on anybody who said they were under uh, 18 and was charged with a felony, which is what happened in this case. And isn't it amazing, though, that five years later, City Hall would pass a measure that, if anything, went beyond this because it was for, for adults as well as juveniles. It's crazy that San Francisco would do this. But there is this view, and, and make no mistake about it, there are advocates who, who really believe that if you are uh, undocumented and you've committed felonies, you shouldn't be deported for it. Now, to me, when you're here, whether you're a legal or immigrant or an illegal immigrant, you should be on your best behavior because you don't want to be deported. And if you have all these felonies, or in, in, in Mr. Lopez Sanchez's case, uh, seven felonies, you should be deported. But San Francisco deliberately set out to protect people like this. And unless voters pressure City Hall, this policy will not change. And if you are somebody with a career record, where are you going to go? Where do you want to live if you continue, if you plan on reoffending? San Francisco. Dan, is this policy, can it be saved? I mean, is it? Well, they're really, they're not talking about dramatic changes to the rule. Yeah, well, I guess, the you ordinance. know, I've, I haven't covered it, but, yeah. but I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. And, and we can try and split the hairs as to exactly what Mercury, you know, clearly Mercury, it seems like, took it a step further. Uh, clearly, though, basically the core of the policy is flawed. But... But there is a purpose in some sort of sanctuary city policy 
setting aside the felony issues, you're, right? You're saying yeah. that you think it would be reasonable to have a policy that would, that if somebody reported a crime to the police, that they wouldn't be fearful that, that SFPD would refer them to ICE yeah, and be deported. Right, yeah. But that is so, so 20 years ago. <laughs> That's what it is. Now this is, we're going to protect people with criminal records. I mean, look, we have our DA pushed a policy that says, if you're, we will not impound your car if you're caught driving without a license because we want, that's okay. Yeah, I but, mean, but, this but is... You see, it is, it's, 20, it's so 20 years ago in San Francisco. But the other issue of this is how it's playing across the country. And well, the, because that's where they'll all be in 20 years. No, no, if no, you no. have that little, that, that quaint policy, given time, you'll be San Francisco, because that's, that's where it's moving. I, I don't think that, that necessarily having a, some sort of sanctuary city policy means that you have to evolve to San Francisco's extremism. Okay, I, I think there are what, 200 communities across mm -hmm. the country? 320. But there are no, a number of them do have similar policies. Yeah, we are yeah. not, the, and, we are and, hardly the and, only and I'm city. Certainly not, and I'm certainly not defending what San Francisco has. The, quite, the trick here is. But, can, but it's can, actually can, not a trick. No, no, it's not a trick. You don't pass a law that says you, you do not um, uh, comply with the ICE detainer unless it's somebody who's been convicted of a violent felony in the last seven years. You don't have to pass that. You can get rid of that ordinance. You can say people, you know, people with who have criminal records, ICE has wants a detainer. You hand them over. You could. That's. There's nothing. That's what it was, and, mm -hmm. and, and could be again. Except City Hall doesn't want to do it. Yeah. No. No. Right. But but but. And my only point is, I'm I'm certainly not going to defend what San Francisco has because I don't think it's defensible. My point, though, is how this debate is likely to play out nationally is that we may swing completely the other way, and you won't have... And, and the reasonable part of this is going to get lost, too. Well, you know, all City Hall has to do is say, we went too far, we're That's going to get rid of it. But no, instead, <coughs> they're not doing it. And what is Washington going to do? They're going to cut off all funding for sanctuary cities. And, you, and it's because it's pretty clear when San Francisco won't back down that that's where the path leads. Yeah, well, I, that, I understand that's, that. And that's, so, I mean, I mean I, all I hear about is the extremist Republicans. Look at this city. What city in its right mind wants to make this kind of an announcement? And, and, and have these values, and, and has so little regard for people like the Bologna family and Kate Steinle that they're willing to risk public safety for this. Deborah, I'm not and, disagreeing no, okay. with well, you. you. Well, all, all then I'm, just say, all I'm saying is that why aren't say why isn't San Francisco doing this, well, Dan? Okay, San Francisco well, should <laughs> San Francisco should be changing it. It, it. it absolutely should. My only concern is how do how do we on a national level. Get the, how do you start distinguishing this? Well, on and, and let, let's level. look at the national level. I mean, yeah. Josh, I know, is just dying to jump in here. <laughs> really He's know. thinking <laughs> I'm, so, I'm keeping my mouth shut. I'm not stupid. Well, <laughs> just on the level of this, this talk on, on the federal level of defunding sanctuary cities, yeah. is that something that do you, do you think has any likelihood of actually going through, or this is an expression of outrage? 
I think it's an expression of outrage. I don't think it has much chance of actually going through, and, and you know, it, it would have to survive a veto, yeah, most yeah, the likely. Yeah, the president will veto it. Uh, and and, and it right. would be hard, you know, the, the, it, it would be a pretty much a party-line thing, although there would be some who would cross the aisle. But I, I, think, I think what's happening nationally and here to some extent is, you know, you've heard a lot of good points from, from both of these people, and they're both right, but there are a lot of, of people out there who are trying in making these arguments to perpetrate this myth that illegal immigrants and Mexican illegal immigrants in particular are responsible for some disproportionate share of violent crime and that our streets are, are tremendously more dangerous because of their presence here. This is not borne out by the statistics. In, in, I, I'm not saying that cases like the, obviously, you know, Steinle and the, the I forget, I'm sorry, the other case. The, the, the Bologna family. Yes, yeah. Uh, <coughs> it, it does happen, but it does not happen in a proportion that, that makes this the population that if you remove them, then all will be well. But, but, but it, let me, it doesn't it, work that in, way. In, in what communities <laughs> get it worst when, when, when it, do you think it's good for the mission if, you know, somebody like Juan Francisco Lopez Sanchez says, boy, I'm going to stay in San Francisco because I'm not going to be deported if I'm here. This is bad for immigrant communities. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. I, you know, I, I'm appalled by what Donald Trump said. But I just and, think and this, we've heard this that is... from immigrant communities. Yeah. But we've also said that the the average illegal immigrant story is somebody who came here to make either to send yeah. money back to their families or to bring their families here to lead a better life. And I've not seen a single criminal justice department, FBI, local law enforcement statistic 
that indicates, as Donald said, that they're rapists, they're murderers, they're addicts, and some of them are good people, you know, which is the way that I'm he, sure. Which is the way that I'm he sure he said. You know, uh, that, that, was, that, was, that was in his yeah. campaign rollout speech. You know, that was, that was what started the whole Trump train a rolling there. Um, so. An exit question then before yeah. we move on to our next topic, and that is just as one of our audience members asked. Uh, how does the future look for Sheriff Ross McGreamy? Maybe focus us on... Is he going to be sheriff after the election? This. Well, this is going to be, you, if you're a real hard leftist, this is going to be a toughie for you. Because on the one hand, you were probably not, you know, many, some more, some defended him with, with the whole uh, flap with his wife and, 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 and the charges against him. But now you've got this whole, but now he's a guy who, who carried out, the, you know, due process for all. So that's a toughie, isn't it? Right. <laughs> the irony yeah. is for him. This this issue may play well in in San Francisco yeah. for him. And, yeah. yeah we'll if he'd see. only changed the uniform. I know. Okay. <laughs> well, let's move on to our next topic, and that is the minimum wage. Uh, the University of California system moved last week to raise its own minimum wage that it pays to fifteen dollars an hour. Uh, cities like San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles, other cities have either already raised their minimum wage to $15 or are doing it in you know, phases over the course of a couple of years. Um, is, this, or is $15 the new magic number, or is, is that where the whole country's going? Is there a national movement for this, or is this a city-by-city city thing, and that's how it'll remain? Well, it's happening city-by-city, city, and, it's, and it's been happening for a few years, and the, you know, and I, I, I personally think that raising the minimum wage makes sense. The problem that I've had with some of it is that it's so inconsistent from city to city to city because there's no statewide uh, movement to raise the minimum wage to sort of a more livable minimum wage. We've had some raising, but, you know, to really get it to this kind of level. 15 is, if, I'm, if I remember correctly from some of the other cities, they're sort of jumping a little bit ahead of the pack, timing-wise. But, but this is the problem is that we're, you know, it would be really a lot better if we could find a way to raise, raise it in some sort of uh, uniform way so that employers don't start locating. You know, the university is a unique situation because they are the employer. But, but, and obviously, they can self-impose however they want. But it would be good from community to community if you didn't start having such disparities so that employers start shopping or feeling picked on depending on what community they live this in. This is a problem yeah. that's much more of a problem in California than, than in other states yeah. for obvious reasons. I mean, $15 in San Francisco is very different from $15 in Bakersfield. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's not as easy to set a, a statewide <coughs> livable minimum wage you know, in California where you have this amazing gap in, in uh, cost of living and, and income and stuff, uh, as it might be in a Nebraska or something like that. Not, yeah, that, but, they're, but, not that they're considering they, they, it anyway. You know, and I agree with you uh, up to a certain point, but the interesting thing is really, frankly, $15 an hour is barely, if at all, livable wage even in Bakersfield. Right. You know, I mean, you know, we, we, we have always managed in the state to set some sort of minimum wage. It's just that there is now, and rightfully so, I think, more of a push to move it a little faster and to share some of the wealth from the top. Um, I, Ron Anz, who ran for governor as a Republican years ago, pretty libertarian guy, came out with an argument that I found pretty persuasive a couple years ago where he said, conservatives should support a raise in the minimum wage 
because basically uh, it's better than giving more entitlement spending in other areas. A lot of the folks who sense. are earning these low wages are also receiving public benefits. Yeah. And there would be less of that and more incentive to work, and I thought that made a lot of sense. Now, he was talking about raising the minimum wage to $10.10 an hour. $15 an hour, let me tell you the problem with that. There are going to be more, there are going to be fewer jobs. Um, now, I remember they looked at the numbers for $10.10 an hour, and they found about half a million people would lose their jobs, and 16.5 million people would make more money. So that sounds, okay, that's a trade-off. You get to $15 an hour, and there's an incentive for a lot of employers to mechanize things uh, or move jobs and stuff like that. So um, I can see if city wants to choose to do that, so be it. But there will be consequences. That's a big jump. And I think, Dan, you were also talking the way you were talking about you want to see it sort of done more gradually. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I want to yeah. see. I, I, the, the devil's in the details of it. Uh -huh. You know, and every city in the Bay Area that's done this has done it in a slightly different way, be it Berkeley, Oakland, Richmond, but I San like Francisco. That. But that's good, because then you can see what works and what doesn't, and you want to have different minimum wages for more and less expensive cities. Well, but frankly, all of them, the way they got crafted, you know, they they all have severe problems is what ends up happening. The one with, one with, a, with a severe problem. Okay, you know I mean, you know, but 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 if you're if you're an employer, you start city shopping a little to a certain extent, and I think that becomes a little bit problematic too. I mean, there were there were really interesting unintended consequences in Oakland. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's right. You know, they, they they became very interesting having to do with the restaurant industry, where. You know, because what, what you and the restaurant industry right. poses some very unique situation, but 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 it's it's on for the restaurant industry, the minimum wage is on top of tips. So that and there's already a disparity between what they call the back of the house and the front of the house. Mm -hmm. You know, well, all this is and, and it's the front of the house, the servers who may in the high end restaurants at least do really well, and the minimum wage raise all went to them. So what they're doing in some, when some of these places, they're doing away with tipping to counterbalance this and redistribute within. And actually, it's, it's worked fairly well in a few restaurants, actually. Uh, what about, I mean, you, you, Dan, you've talked about you know, having a more uniform thing across the state. There is a push to do something uniformly nationally. Senator Bernie Sanders and some colleagues introduced a bill to raise the national minimum wage to $15. Now, considering that the Democrats have Pretty much zero power in Congress these days. Um, that that's going gonna nowhere. Happen. But yeah, it, it ain't going to happen. I mean, the, the Democrats. George, George Miller, the recently retired congressman from the East Bay, was a constant champion of, of raising the minimum wage. And once he accomplished an increase, he set about laying the groundwork for the, the next, next increase yeah, because right. it took so long to get yeah. it through. Um, but yeah, in, in this Congress, it, it's it's more, uh, more more of setting a tone and sending a message than than a, a practical matter. Okay. We are going to have more news quiz questions and, of course, much more to discuss Monday, August 17th at our next Week to Week here at the Commonwealth Club. Keep an eye out for us also in mid-September when we return to Silicon Valley. Thanks to our panel, Deborah J. Saunders, Daniel Bornstein, and Josh Richmond. Thank you to all of you here, everyone watching on TV and listening online. Have a great week, everybody. 
Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. Tune into the Michelle Meow Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.